Welcome, Mo Foster, to Musician Funnies, which is the first in the in the ever-changing Radio Richard world of existence. And you are the guy. And the reason you are the guy to be doing this is this. Look mm -hmm. at this book. This is the greatest book ever in the history of books, except for all of mine. So 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 you you have to either buy my books or Mo's. And this is Mo's book. And it's a laugh riot. And the thing about it is, because it's a laugh riot, it gave me the idea to have this whole series of videos called Musician Funnies. Yeah. So so I asked Mo to send me some, some stories from his incredible career. Those of you who don't know Mo haven't lived. It's that simple. Uh, but he's a man. He's worked with thousands and millions of famous people. And they've worked with him too, which is an incredible coincidence, I think. I asked Mo to send me some ideas for some funny stories he wanted to tell. And he sent me another book just this size. <laughs> so, so that was a complete waste of space. By the way, there's my book in the corner there. Everyone should buy that. Thank you. Okay, so now how many amusing, ridiculous things happen to musicians while they're trying to earn a living. <laughs> so, it, it, do, you, do you remember being at a lunch ever with friends and somewhere shouting and laughing, and someone says, we must write this down? Yes. And no one ever did. Exactly. And uh, I finally sort of did, began sketching. You know, that was, that was the start of it. Right. Because it's such a, a very rich world of anecdote. Yes, indeed, it is. I'd done an album for Jeff Beck, it was called There and Back in 1980. And we were going to start touring. The first tour was a tour of the States. And we assembled at Heathrow Airport. That's me and Simon Phillips and Tony Hymas. And Jeff didn't appear, he was late. He arrived too late to get the plane, carrying a cardboard box full of baked beans that he needed on tour for some reason and his hands were covered in sun boil. He'd been fixing a hot rod. We were all a bit annoyed, but finally one of the crew got us another flight, which meant going via Chicago in order to connect down to Fort Lauderdale, but with a five hour stopover. So we're very tired, very exhausted, very fed up. We finally get to, to um, Florida and Jeff's suitcase has disappeared. Now, th there's a folly here because his suitcase was an old one. With, there's only one address on the case, and that was the address of an apartment in Los Angeles that burnt down two years earlier. <laughs> so it, it's going to go nowhere, this. And the outcome of which is well, he borrowed my underwear for the first couple of days on tour. Fantastic. So, Jeff Beck wore my underwear. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I never watched it afterwards. Oh, you didn't? Okay, no. great. I, I'd hate to be in your house right now. <laughs> there are a lot of amusing people you've worked with, too. I was doing an album for Frida Anifrid of ABBA. Nice. In Stockholm. And, it, and Phil was producing. That's where I met him. And by complete coincidence, the Earth went forward on a world tour and they passed through Stockholm. So Phil rang up the horns and got them over. The real bonus, you know, so was out there to uh, um, Peter Robertson to write, to write some charts out, and they played. And a bit later, when Phil was, Phil was thinking about forming his first band, um, he got most of the guys together from that session, which is Peter and Daryl Sturmer was the guitar. He brought in Chester Thompson and the Horns, the Earth Wind of My Horns, they were lovely guys. We got to know them on the road. And um, they had a a slight idiosyncrasy. They loved carrot juice. And oh. they had an industrial juicer with them in a flight case that traveled around with us. And you'd be uh, getting ready in your in your dressing room. Next door, you could hear the juicer winding up and disgorging its gallons. And that's fine. Everybody accepted that. Well, jump to 50 gigs later, it's the roadies prank night. You know, roadies are always allowed to do something silly on the last night. You never knew what it was going to be. And conventionally, the show would start in somber light, just the five-piece rhythm, doing the first song. Then it would fade to black. 
And in that darkness, the, the four horn guys would walk on, get ready in front of their mics. Um, bright light, second song. Well, this followed the pattern, except there were suddenly convulsions of people falling over and I had no idea what was happening. What had happened is the, the road crew had gone into Washington during the afternoon, bought four of the biggest carrots they could find, whittled them in the shape of a Sennheiser RE20, stuck a cable in the back. <laughs> so the horns are playing into four carrots. It was fantastic. It was great stuff. When you're in a big band like that, uh, the roadies do get a chance to do something amusing if the star happens to not be a psycho and has a sense of humor. Because some stars don't have any sense of humor, I've found. By the way, have you heard of International Roadies Day? No, I haven't. Tell, tell me about it. It's the 12th of, 12th of December. Yes. 2012. So it's one, two, one, two, one, two. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. I wasn't on this album, but George Martin told me this story. Um, do you remember the album Blow by Blow? In the oh, very well. Yes, loved it. It's a gorgeous album. I, I loved it. When they were recording it, George said that there was a particular solo that Jeff did that was stunning, as, as indeed his solos are. Yeah. But he wasn't satisfied with it. And he asked if he could take it away and listen to it again and come back and redo the solo. So he did that. Then a week later, George gets another phone call for exactly the same. Can he come back and redo his solo? Every time it's different, but brilliant, but he's not satisfied. And after a few weeks, this stops and uh, George gets on with his life. He gets the same phone call again. And he came out with this immortal line, which I've borrowed in other circumstances. He said, Jeff, I'm sorry, it's in the shops. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I was doing an album. I had great privilege to work at George's studio in Montserrat, in Montserrat. Yes. It was lovely. And it, through the control room window, you could see a pool and then a slope and then there's the Caribbean. It was just gorgeous. But um, one day, I was playing, it was, it was like a five-piece rhythm section. I've no idea why, but I hit the wrong string. I played in the right area, right fret, but kept playing a fourth wrong. Very stupid, I've no idea why. I apologised, and the guys realised that in the five minutes it took to get ready in the studio and then overdub this two-bar error, they could have a quick swim. <laughs> so my goof, goofs became known as swim breaks. Nice. And uh, I, I composed myself, got it, got it right, it was all right. In the afternoon session, I started doing it again. Did another stupid mistake in the wrong, on the wrong string. I happened to look up at Frank Ricotti. Do you know Frank? Very well, yes. Percussion player. He's playing congas. And he did this. He looked, he caught my eye and went... <laughs> <laughs> it was nice. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, he was one of the first musicians I ever worked with when I came to London in 1975. Sure. Uh, he was booked on one of my sessions, and I was lucky enough to have him in the studio. And he, I, I, I got him because I asked for vibe. And he was one of the few guys who played vibes as, you know, tuned percussion as well as percussion if, percussion. If you can't get Gary Burton, you get Frank Ricotti. Yeah, no, he was he was fantastic and 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 rather amusing in the studio too. Ringo Starr. <laughs> it's like a test. This do do I do I pass the exam at the? Well, I don't know. I'll find out afterwards. And if you don't, you know, there will be beating. <laughs> Ringo, following on from this Frida session, I, I got a call. It was while I was in Stockholm, I got a call to say, would I do an album with Ringo? I think it came via Ray Cooper, the other lovely percussionist. And the, the, on the keyboards with, was Gary Brooker. Joe Walsh was producing and on guitar. Nice. And it was a nice little team. And uh, <clears throat> when I arrived, I went down his front path. The door opens. And then he's standing there. And I put my hand out. I said, hello, I'm Mo." He said, oh, hello, I'm Ringo. I kept thinking, of course you are, you know, you couldn't be anybody else. 
And the sessions were great, very friendly. To my great pleasure and surprise, Joe Walsh at one point said, we've run out of material. So, you know, race back home and get some stuff. And he actually did one of my songs. He changed it a bit, but uh, it's on the album. It, we, we'd called it Stop the Car, but he called it In My Car. Ringo had a dog, I think his name was Leo, a big Alsatian, that was part pet and part guard dog. The dog was confused because it didn't know what its role was. We did the sessions, went away for a week and it came back. And I, on the day I arrived, it was a lovely sunny day, I was a, an hour early. And um, I thought I'd go for a walk in, in Tittenhouse Park, away from the house. So I'd walk down the slope and I've got the instrument on, just practicing in the sun, it's nice. And I hear a motion on behind me about 20 yards away. Uh, there's Barbara Bach and the dog and her daughter, and they waved. And the dog came towards me and I thought he was coming for a stroke or something. Uh -huh. so, I, so I saw the drool and the, the teeth. Right, nice. He was coming to kill me. Um, <laughs> this wasn't fun. I'm, I, I spun round, which is hard with the bass on, and yes. get my away. And I remember yelling on, on the slope a sentence that you don't normally say to an ex-bond girl. I said, "Will you get this fucking thing off me?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it made contact. It bit me on the arse. I've still got the shirt with four holes. Really? In. Yeah. You I know, had to go take to a hospital with tetanus and so on. Did you really? Yeah, because I it reminds me of the fact that uh, I was once doing a session at Morgan Studios years and years ago. Sure. And, and if you remember Morgan Studios uh, in North London, it, it had two dogs, which were guard dogs, but oh. they were very gentle. Usually, you know, they were just hanging around those, those yeah. dogs. And I, I got there, as I always get to the studio, because I'm, you know, the arranger. Uh, I got there early and opened the door. Uh, the door was open, you know, and so yeah. I opened the door and the two dogs lunged at me and bit me on the leg. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody had, I don't know, it was somebody's fault. They were unchained. They weren't, they were, they usually were chained up. The unchained bark. Uh, or, or we could talk about Barbara Bark, but we won't do that. Um, but anyway, yeah. And then, of course, I had to be sent to the hospital for tet tetanus, too. And uh, the studio was very apologetic, but not financially apologetic. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, sure. that's my dog story. Any story with Herbie Flowers in it has got to be good. So John Williams and Herbie Flowers is a double benefit. So let's do it. It was just a little story that uh, John told me. In the early days of the band Sky, they're, they're recording at Abbey Road, Studio Two. So do, do you know, the? I'll have to describe the aura of Herbie Flowers. He's a very sort of free spirit, a very eccentric man. At one point while they're recording, John had a chord that he didn't quite understand if it was right or not. He put his lovely acoustic down, walked over to where Herbie was sitting, pointed at this chord on the part and said, Herbie, that chord there, is that a minor seven flat five? Or what is it? And Herbie looked up at him and said, mind your own fucking business. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Herbie Flowers. <laughs> uh, I can add to the John story. John used to live near me in, in Belsize and then he moved out to Cornwall, so I didn't see him very often. And I'd just come back from the hospital for, for an eye test where they dilate the pupil. So everything is incredibly bright till it wears off. I was walking home and in the distance, in this very fuzzy bright distance, I could see an older couple and their dog and the dog's having a really good dump on the pavement. And I was getting ready for the argument. You, know, you shouldn't do this. But as I got nearer, I recognized it was John and his wife and their greyhound. And John had by this time put on the plastic glove and was picking up the business. Yes. And then as we got very near, he put his hand up to shake hands. <laughs> I remember thinking, <laughs> <laughs> a warm handshake. What, <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't taken off the glove? He had, yes, yes. Okay, all right, well, that's yes. 
<laughs> but you were still apprehensive. Yes. <laughs> oh, Dennis Waterman, he, he's always uh, amusing. It's not a, a, a specific story about Dennis. It's just that we, uh, in 78 or 79, we've been asked to record an album with Chris Neal producing. Nice. Uh, for Dennis Waterman. It was just a solo album with him singing. And uh, we did some lovely tracks. It got on very well. A couple of years later, the, a TV production company was producing a series called Minder. And they picked up one of his songs, which is called uh, I Should Be So Good For You. Yes. I, and it fits perfectly. But it was never meant for the TV series. And what had happened on the session was just, for me, interesting. The part was ploddy, just Route 5th. There was nothing there. And I just bought a Kramer base with the aluminium neck, which is a bit, you could do slappy stuff on it. And I thought I'd give that a try. And that's what you hear on the on the track. Right. My first attempt at slapping. Oh, I, well, you know, I knew Derek Wadsworth very well, uh, in, especially he, he helped me a lot during my first years in England. And I worked with him on a big project for Cat Stevens. So any story with Derek Wadsworth has got to be good fun. <laughs> Derek, very sweet guy. He sadly died about 10 years ago, I think. Yes, that's right. Um, loved him. He was great and good, always good fun to work with him on sessions. And he had an, a slight element of surrealism lurking inside him. And on one very big session at when CTS Wembley Studios, and he, he sort of in the middle of a cut between, between playing, he called me over and said, uh, he said, Mo, you see bar 71, and of course I looked for the part and find it and said, yeah, yeah, what, what is it? He said, it's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> that particular quality also was shared by Mike Gibbs, who I know you worked with as well. No, uh, I haven't worked with Mike. I, oh, I you just really? met him. No, I just oh. met him the last couple of years ago, that's all. I did two of his tunes on my album. Right, right. Well, Mike has, as you know, a, a, a lovely kind of whimsical kind of gentle quality in the way sure. that he speaks. Sure. And, the, and it was our very first day of having him. I was at Berkeley and he, he we heard he was coming to teach and I was so happy that I had been chosen to be one of his students. and. <clears throat> there he is, and all of all of my fellow students were so excited to, to learn from such a master and such an original, innovative guy. You know, he walked in, he said hello to everybody nicely, and he sat down. We sat there, and he sat there saying nothing. And then finally he said, well, what should we talk about today? <laughs> and we all thought we're doomed because... He hasn't prepared anything. And so finally, of course, I piped up because I'm that type of person. And I said, okay, Mike, can you tell me about this particular piece? And I can't remember which piece it was. That, that uh, Can you tell me how you composed this piece? And he said, oh, yes. He said, well, one day I was sitting down at the piano and my hands just accidentally went to this chord here and he played this amazing sound. And he said, and I thought, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and we waited and we waited and we waited and nothing. And he was just sitting there at the piano smiling, you know, looking at us like, isn't that nice? And of course, so then finally, of course, Muggins here had to pipe up and say, okay, Mike, that's, yes, it is nice, but why was it nice? And what, what, why, how did you compose this whole piece from that one chord? So then he said, oh, well, I haven't really thought about it, but um, let's see. And he goes up to the blackboard and we had these blackboards with music lines, you know, with staves on it. And he, and he wrote out the chord. And I thought, okay, well, that's nice, okay. And he said, then I saw that this chord had some very interesting intervals in it. And then he started, the, the brain started working and it was yeah. the most incredible 
class of all, of all time. Oh, how because, lovely. because he just, it just turned on. And he said, well, then I did this. And then I thought, well, if I can do that, why can't I do that? And then this suggests that I could do, and the whole thing came together. But <laughs> that kind of... But he, he's a free spirit, isn't he? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And, and he needed you. you. You were important for that moment. Well, for that moment, yes. But, you know, he he uh, sort of, yeah, he didn't need me that much. Can I, can I tell you another free spirit moment? We, Ray and I worked with Gil Evans in the British Orchestra. And uh, we rehearsed this. It was a strange time because he doesn't give many instructions. There's a, there's a connection of these two guys. And we're rehearsing at a, a place called, I can't remember, Shepherd's Bush, Nomis in Shepherd's Bush. Oh yeah, Nomis. And at one point there's a big chord, a big cluster, lots of semitones. And, and he's talking to the horns, who are the top guys, Henry Lauder, Stan Salzman, all these guys. And he very quietly, he said, well, these are the notes I've written for you. If you don't like it, play another one. <laughs> it's that different. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's I, I've heard that about, especially about the period when you were working with Gil Evans. You know, it was a little bit different. I've talked to um, Chris Hunter about that experience too, and it's it's very sure. interesting. Um, with Mike, you know, he he told me that he always got a lot of people asking him, uh, "Are you sure that's what you want? Are you sure?" <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But as I as I explain in my chapter on Mike Gibbs in my wonderful book, The Invisible Artist, here, okay, um, his whole thing was to to have an enormous, like an enormous C chord, the whole orchestra, you know, the, but one instrument, like a French horn playing pianissimo, a D flat. And and that was the thing, or or playing, you know, some note that was not going to work, but because of it, he he describes it as just adding a kind of a feeling, a different color to the big fat triad. So I love yeah, these are geniuses that we've been both blessed to work with. Yeah. So yeah, I, but, I asked him about a there's a thing that Gil did with the horns, especially trumpets, would be going between two notes. You know that kind of sound. Yes, of course. If there was a name for this, we, we couldn't get a name. And he, he discovered that there are two or three different ways of doing this on trumpet. So he wrote out the part to make it as hard as possible for them. Nice. Yeah, well, some, sometimes that can result in something, but, but obviously... Um, if you're doing a jingle session from <laughs> 10 to 11, you, you yeah. can't really mess around with that. <laughs> uh, you, you've talked to Ray, didn't you, recently? Just... Uh, yes, I did. There was a little story he told me. Uh, he was at a big session at Wembley CTS. I don't know, 50, 60 pieces. And before the session started, the conductor's going around all the sections, just making sure all their parts are, are okay, the cellos horns so right right around the room it takes about 15 minutes <clears throat> and then he's about to start he said right before we go are there any questions and ray said uh yeah do you think one should pet on the first date <laughs> yeah that, that's right <laughs> <laughs> guffaws you know the whole room yeah, of pet. course yes indeed um okay i'm going to go back to your funny stories well, you've got so many Cliff Richard stories. I'll just ask you to choose one of the funniest. Oh, God, they're, they're, they are funny. Okay. Do, do you remember the big muff pedal? Yes, I do. Yes, indeed. Very good pedal, wasn't it? Yes. It, right now, there's a picture of Cliff. Not only that, I'm going to tell everybody right now that Cliff has one of the most amazing voices in all of popular music <laughs> and and was a huge, huge star in Britain and did have one big hit here with Devil Woman. Oh yeah, sure. Well that was written by Terry Britton. Good old Terry Britton. Terry features in this story. He'd, he'd just got this pedal, the big muff, and uh, it's shiny. It's quite big and it's quite shiny. Yes. And Cliff, as he's leaping up and down on the stage, he can see this pedal 
and liked it. He liked the, the way it looked, the techno, techno, techno look of it. A bit later, we're in a room discussing the artwork for his next album. Right. And he, he had this idea to superimpose the image of that pedal with him, with his face. Now, it might have worked, but it's the way he described it, slightly innocent. And uh, he said, what I see is my face with a big muff on it. And the, <laughs> the room just emptied. <laughs> I, I, would, I would think so, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've heard from everybody who's worked with Cliff that he was absolutely great to work with. Charming, good, good man, total pro. He's uh, totally impressed. He's a really yeah. good performer. He, he, do you remember a song, um, the John Denver song, Country Roads? Yes. Well, they'd worked out a version of this that was going to start a cappella, so just him and three backing vocals with the lovely, can you imagine four piece goats singing Country Roads? Da, da, da. Yes, yes. That was the plan. And they, set it up such that there'd be a note from the piano for pitch dong, and then the conductor would, would I think it'd be like one two country and you're in yes and that worked but one day it didn't work because while the conductor was about to do this he noticed that Cliff wasn't looking at him as meddling with his tie oh and so he did a cut but the back one of the backing singers didn't see the cut so you you heard the note from the piano Cunt. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that could have been difficult, especially for Cliff's audience. <laughs> but, There's but, one more here, as I mentioned this, the kangaroo we toured Australia. And uh, it was great. It was a very friendly band, very social. Clem Katini was on drums, Greg right. Jarvis. The road crew, big, big distances, and mostly it's flying, but the road crew decided to go on a drive between towns in further inland. So this is where you start to meet the, the real animals of the country. Yes. And uh, one day they're driving and a kangaroo just unfortunately hopped past them, banged into the front of the, of the truck and they stopped. It was, it was dazed, dozy, dazed. And uh, they felt very sorry for it. Then being road crew, they got silly. They picked up this poor thing Put their arms around the kangaroo's arms around two of the guys and started taking photographs. Then they got very silly and they went and got a silk bomber jacket with Cliff Richard on the back, put it on the kangaroo, put his arms through the sleeves, <laughs> zip in front, and it wakes up and hops off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the story definitely had a had a funny and a happy ending. Happy, but although the kangaroo would have probably preferred ACDC rather than Cliff on his back. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 you're lucky that he wasn't hopping mad. Oh, <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah, thank you. Well, that's, uh, yeah. I'd love to you to tell the um, Dusty Springfield story because that can, this just shows you how with musicians, wardrobe is very important for some gigs. <laughs> You've no idea. I got a call to do a, a live TV show, a show with her. It was called Live from the Hippodrome. And there was a big band. And um, we had to dress up in the, in the proper gear, black and white, you know, proper tie, which I don't own. Not very good at all that stuff. So I rang um, BBC Wardrobe. They agreed they would have something ready for me in the dressing room and they took my measurements on the phone and I thought that was the end of it but I thought I'd better arrive a bit early just to check so I arrived half an hour early <clears throat> went down the dressing room looked in the on the hangers and there is all my suits the whole thing so I tried on the jacket it was perfect it really fitted lovely when I got to the trousers they were kind of Laurel Hardy trousers they, they if I, if I Put the, the bit where the belt is, if I move that up so that the, um, the crotch is in the right place, then the belt line was here. Nice. And if I had that down there, then the crotch is down by my knees. It was, it was that's why I called them clown trousers. It was awful. The show was starting in half an hour. I panicked and 
managed to get hold of some, do you call them braces or suspenders? Yeah, suspenders, braces, whatever, yes. So I hitched up the trousers to this height, <laughs> look ridiculous, and then put the jacket like this. Good idea. I'm standing behind Dusty in, in, the, in the whole show, because it, it's on YouTube, you'll find it. And uh, if I, thank God she never found out, you know, how to fit. Oh, she never noticed it. No, no one did. Yeah, she was an amazing woman, and uh, I got to produce a record for her. And uh, Oh, great. Yeah. yeah, it was quite amazing to talk to her about music. She was very knowledgeable about about music. She was, was very much still a fan of, of lots of people and, and had, you know, a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of many, many uh, artists. And uh, Well, she was so important. She brought the whole Motown thing to England. Well, it's, it's incredible. incredible. Uh, not only did she have a unique and incredibly beautiful voice, yeah. uh, the one thing about her was that she's such a strong personality, and yet in the studio I found her to be rather insecure. And um, she wanted uh, the her headphones so loud yeah. and not hearing her own voice. And, and it was so loud that when I went into the studio, because I had to check, it was so loud, I thought, how can she be? As I opened the door of the studio, this was a big room, and I, I could hear the headphones actually distorting and blaring out from yeah. the other side of the room. Yeah. Um, this was CBS Studios, Whitfield. She, she did change, though, because after that TV show, she wanted to revoice her performance. They spent something like 12 hours. And yep. Not not one take was used. They kept the original. All right. Well, I'm I'm sure that the original takes were perfect because I yeah. never heard I never heard her sing one bad note ever. Even though she wanted to redo her vocals, I think she did at least forty takes. Can I tell you a silly story about her? Do you know Mike Hurst? Sure. Yeah. Producer who used to be in the Springfields with her. Right. And one day they turned up at the theatre. And uh, the Lana sisters, who was the main act, who she hated, uh, were, were doing their routine. And they were doing one of the songs that she wanted to do. So she hated them even more. And Mike's in the wings, just standing watching the, the rehearsal. And she suddenly arrives next to him, carrying a tea tray full of crockery. <laughs> and he says, what are you doing? And she suddenly throws it up in the air <laughs> and yells out, he pushed me. <laughs> That's great. Oh, she's different. Yes. Any, any Ronnie Scott story has got to be great. Ronnie, Ronnie. I, I, he was my manager for two and a half years, so I Fantastic. heard him doing his routine. You know, heard the jokes. And it was the delivery. He delivered it so well. Yes. Fantastic. But a couple of stories stood out for me. One was. Um, he was talking about the war and the, how difficult it was just after the war, the austerity, and how his mum used to buy his clothes, his school clothes, at a place called the Army and Navy stores. Right, I, I went there myself. You know, surplus thing. He said, but he said, let me tell you, it wasn't easy for a 10-year-old Jewish kid from the East End having to go to school dressed as a Japanese admiral. Yeah, yeah. Surrealism is fantastic. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, my, my funny Ronnie Ronnie Scott story, which I'll 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 tell you briefly, is I was doing a session for Betty Boo. Do you remember that artist? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. She was a great artist, actually, and um, very nice person uh, to work with. And she had this song and. She and the producer wanted to use the horn riff from Lady Madonna behind the song. Yeah. And they said, can you reproduce that sound? We want that sound. And I said, not only can I reproduce it, but I had recently been working with Paul McCartney. Oh. So I said, I can find out who the original players were on the session. Yeah. And... <clears throat> It's, it's a little difficult for me to remember all the players, but they were, of course, at that time, all aged guys. And one of them was Ronnie Scott, who played uh, tenor sax on Lady Madonna. Yeah. 
So the guys come into the studio and I had written out the exact, I had transcribed exactly what they played on Lady Madonna. You know, they all got their seats and sat down and got themselves comfortable. Uh, one of the guys was so old, I think he was in his 90s, uh, but he could still play. But he didn't quite know where he was and we had to get him to the, to the seat, but he could, he could play and he could read, get, read. So anyway, we got them to the thing and they all get themselves settled. And Ronnie Scott opens the music and he looks down and looks up and with his typical deadpan delivery says, oh, not this bloody thing again. <laughs> <laughs> Which he had played 30 years before. Oh, not this bloody thing <laughs> Yeah, he was it's only one of him. He, he said, he announced a guy on stage, he said, now uh, this gentleman has just finished Cabaret in the North and now he's down here to finish it in the south. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he had a million of them. He was a very yeah. he was a very funny guy. On one occasion, which was a bad occasion, uh, I arrived in the club one afternoon. We, we used to leave our gear set up in what was called the upstairs. Right. <clears throat> and um, it's a band called Affinity. We, we were the first people to play up there. Right. And I arrived and there's a terrible smell in the club. I followed it up the stairs. It smelled like kippers. And there'd been a terrible fire upstairs. Yeah. And, and all of our gear was ruined. The charcoal black, the keys were curling on the Hammond. And they're very wet from the, from the fire department. Thoroughly depressing. Probably from someone's cigarette left over the night. Anyway, I talked to Ronnie about it. And he said, uh, he was apologised for the fire. He said, it occurred a year earlier than planned. <laughs> we, we had a gig the next day at Plumpton Racecourse, it was a big one, and uh, we had no gear. A very kindly soft machine lent us all their equipment, Hammond and everything. Very nice. Well, it just shows you that there is generosity in jazz. <laughs> um, you've got a story which fascinates me here, Chris Farlow and Paul McCartney. Okay, do you know Clem Clemson at all? I know of him, yes. I don't know him personally. But yeah, I know. He's played in like, John Heisman's bands and so on. With right, right. He told me this one day. Um, remember the Flamingo Club in Soho? Yes, I do. So this is probably the 60s. And Chris Farlow is talking to Paul McCartney and they're just chatting about their influences. And they're enjoying it. And uh, Chris says to him, why don't you come back to my place and we'll play some LPs and just have a... Have a Good listen, good chat. So Paul agrees and they drive over. Well, my place is his mum and dad's flat in <laughs> London somewhere. Uh -huh. So it goes in and they it's two in the morning. And they, all the LPs come out and over the floor and all, you know, listening away, shouting, having a great time. Suddenly the door bursts open and Chris follows mummy standing there in her nighty. He said, What do you think you're doing? You wake your dad up. And Chris said, Oh, I'm sorry, Mum. Uh, by the way, this is Paul McCartney. And she froze and backed out of the door, and the door closed. <laughs> she emerged 15 minutes later, totally beautiful in her, her best outfit and carrying a handbag. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. It's a lovely image, isn't it? And, and I'm sure that Paul was absolutely charming to her. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. As, he, as he was to everybody. I mean... I, I worked with him uh, 86, 87, those years. I remember one time when we were walking into Abbey Road Studios and there was a very old woman who was kind of cleaning the steps, you know, sweeping the steps of Abbey Road as you walk up. And I can't remember her name, but he immediately said, oh, Gladys, haven't seen you for, for ages, you know. Uh, how's your husband Bob? He, she, he remembered he hadn't seen her for 15 years or 20 years. Oh, he's fine. He's a bit ailing. He's ailing. And what, you know, he had a big conversation with her. He was absolutely charming to her and said, well, keep well, you know. And how, how does he do that? How does he remember people's names? Is there a trick or is he just good at it? No, I, I don't. I don't know what it is except to say that 
he is genuinely interested in people and yeah. he also you know he likes to be down to earth uh, i i found one thing about working with him was that because you're treated like a god all the time it's really refreshing when people just treat oh, another sure. one of the guys when i first met him I, he asked me what i thought of his recent album and i told him and I, I said, well, you know, it sounds like you were experimenting. I, I wasn't very complimentary. And uh, then I suddenly realized, okay, I've just blown the gig. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But on the contrary, he said, no, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are sycophants. You know, yes. they, everybody just tells me everything I do. Oh, it's great, Paul. You know, sure. but it's very nice to know that you're just telling me what you think. And we'll be able to work together because of that. That's great. That's, that's good. That's as it should be. Yeah. 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 Uh, can I tell you a little story? Um, oh, good, please. Do you remember Peter Van Hook, drummer? I know Peter Van Hook very well. A complete madman, man of many projects. Yes. And he started a thing which became the TV series Live from Abbey Road. Yes. Great idea. <laughs> great series. Well, 10 years earlier, 96, I think this was, it's, it's, it's the early days of him struggling to get it going. Yeah. I just come back from a session at lunchtime and he, he rings me up. He said, you've got to get to Abbey Road straight away. We found out that the Beatles are in Studio Two control room. They were right. doing the anthology. And he said, go and interview them. Oh, oh yes. You know, like it's that easy. So I went down there with a little film crew. Nice. And, um, we sat in the canteen and I tried to make some internal phone calls and you get nowhere. I said to the guys, we're going to sit here a long time and have tea and go home. And after about an hour, Ringo popped in and who, of course, I knew from doing his album. Yes. And he, he yelled across the room and it sounded like Thomas the Tank Engine. Nice. Right. He said, oh, 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 you're still playing that fretless bass. Well, and we chatted and I said, we're here to try and talk to you about your first days in the studio, what it felt like. And he said, yeah, it's fine. And they're coming in. And uh, suddenly I'm sitting at, the, at a table in the canteen with all the surviving Beatles and George Martin and Neil, I forgot his name, Neil Aspinall. Neil Aspinall, right. And I pitched what we're trying to do. It was a surreal moment anyway. You know, I'd only just been having beans on toast and suddenly I'm here. Um, and they said, yeah, uh, uh, come follow us in. We're going back in the studio. Neil popped over and said, I'm afraid you can't do this. In two months' time, we're going to announce to the world that they're friends again. <clears throat> so you can't do it. And I, I panicked. I said, well, how about one of them? I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> he came back and said, George will do it. And I'm so nervous now. I had to go for a run around the block. <laughs> come back in. And, the sound man ran after me and said, he's waiting for you. Oh. So George Harrison's waiting in Studio Two. The first interview in 25 years in that room. Right. I'm, I'm late, sweaty, and with no questions planned. <laughs> and he was a sweetheart. He, he began answering questions I should have asked him. Yes. There is a video of it, but it's, which I've got, but it's never been shown. I don't know what to do with it. Well, you know. If you want, if you find it, we'll show it on Radio Richard, Apple. <laughs> you can be our first guest interviewer. <laughs> okay. I've done this whole chapter in the book. Yes, yes. And uh, he, <clears throat> used, he was telling me about his, his school band. <clears throat> and um, this is a period when nobody knew anything. This is the 60s. Everyone was scrubbing around for information. And they got hold of some sheet music and they saw these chord names, C7 or whatever, and one of them was G sus. Right. I had a discussion about what it meant. <laughs> Suspend or whatever. And the, the drummer thought it meant G suspect, which meant you didn't have to play it if you didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or suspicious, well, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> The year was 73, and uh, I got a call to do a, a concert at the Mermaid Theatre on the, on the river. <clears throat> and um, it was with a little rhythm section with Paul Keogh, I don't remember, 
Lovely yeah, to indeed, sure. Dublin, to Dubliner. And Chris Caron, Dudley Moore's drummer, was on bass. And a little string quartet. And we're backing this woman called Magdalena Buznia, who's a Romanian singer. Nice. Who was doing the music of Edith Piaf. And that's what she wanted us to do, to play a concert, like a showcase. And fine, except we had a three-hour rehearsal, and each part was about six pages long, still taped together. And at the end of page six, there'd be a DS, meaning go back somewhere, except you couldn't find where the sign was. Right. Very badly structured, you know, and a recipe for something going wrong. Of course, it did go wrong. And she's singing, she had no mic technique. She, there'd be a solitary mic in the center of the stage on the stand. Yeah. She'd be up and down, enthusing about PF. Right, right. And you'd hear, you'd hear, ah, she goes yeah. past it. <laughs> so we start and it's difficult because we're struggling so hard to play what she intends. And at one point, there's a really heart-wrenching ballad being sung. And I'm so lost, you know, I think I thought a knitting pack would have been more use. I have no clue where to go in this part. And I noticed that Paul, this lovely Irish guitar player, was doing a tremolando, like that. Yeah. And staring at his part intently. <laughs> he looked like he knew what he was doing. <clears throat> so I did the very quiet stage whisper. I said, Paul, where are we? And he, he didn't look up. He went, fuck knows. <laughs> <laughs> but he thought of a great solution to the problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we've all been there. Uh, yeah. The funniest reading story that I ever heard was a friend of mine years and years ago told a story that he got, like, he was a drummer. And he, he got a gig playing with the, his school orchestra. And it was, he, he really wanted to do this, but he wasn't a very good reader. He could read, but he didn't, he didn't, he hadn't studied classical, so he didn't know too many, too much of the terminology. So he's playing this piece. And at one point in the, in the piece that was being played, he looked at the part and he picked up his part and he walked off stage. <laughs> and, and the the band leader, the conductor stopped everything and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just doing what it says on the part. Take it. <laughs> he, he read the word tacit as take it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that was cute. Yeah. There was a guitar player who was the greatest reader on session. And he kept overrunning that every time there was a tacit, he would play another couple of notes. Right, right. Everybody yeah. else stopped except him. And uh, Frank Clark, a double bass player, lovely guy, in a break, he leans over to this guy on the other side of the screen and says, that's a nice guitar. That's a Gibson, isn't it? And the guy said, yeah, sure. He said, are those pegs, are those pegs gold-plated? He said, yeah, yeah. And Frank said, it hasn't got disc brakes, has it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going, to, I'm going to now give you a special method that I've just invented to end our interviews on these musician funnies things. And I haven't really thought of a clever name for it, but it'll be something like, five questions, five answers, or something like that. Um, so here it here goes, Qu quick fire answers, quick fire round. Yeah, oh dear. Coffee or any other thing that you could possibly ingest? Coffee. Okay, good, you're my man. Okay, second question. As a musician, fees or royalties? Royalties. Okay, very interesting expand on that just a little bit well it's better if you, if you if you get it right and argue enough it's it's better yes yes the, Mar the marx brothers proved that point <clears throat> in the 40s or whatever they they thought their career was over or 50s they sold all their rights little realizing that they'd be huge in a few years time absolutely right well that's that's 
that's a tragic story in musicians' funnies, but nevertheless, clubs or concerts, which do you prefer playing? I actually can't answer that. I like both for different reasons. Okay, quickly, what are the reasons? <laughs> clubs, uh, the intimacy, you can actually see the audience and interact with them. Yes. Talk to them even. The concerts just for the, for the, the pleasure of that bigness, that big sound going out, coming yes. back. Yes, that's true. Well, size isn't everything, but in this case, it probably is. Um, okay. Practice or have lunch? Oh, have lunch. Okay. Nice. Quick answer. Glad to see that you've got your priorities right. And the last, the last one, of course, I know what the answer is going to be, but it's another musician choice we all have to make. Invoice or cash? It's a trick question, isn't it? <laughs> okay, it's a, here's, here, I'll make it even clearer. You invoice for 500 pounds or you get 200 cash on the day. Oh, wow, invoice. Yeah, but how do you know you're gonna get paid? How many invoices have you ever sent in that you haven't gotten paid for? Oh, a lot, but the thing, um, this is a very boring answer now. The thing about okay. an invoice is proof of performance. So that wow. many years later, you can get some kind of repeat for you. I see. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Well, Mo Foster, this is going to be the end of our interview, but not the end of our relationship, which I, I hope you'll come back and tell us more stories at some point. This is me and Ray playing together. There we are. Is this the new record? New album. You know new album. Okay. Mo Foster and Friends. Lovely. And I'm glad you use the letter R there, otherwise it would be Mo Foster and Fiends, and you don't want that. Well, it's still true. I think that was a Ronnie Scott joke, if you remember back. That's one of his jokes that he used to tell. <laughs> but anyway, Mo Foster, thank you so much, and, and uh, we'll see you soon, big boy. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure. Great pleasure. Feeling a bit tired? Thinking of getting an early night tonight? Forget it, because I'm Richard Niles, and instead of sleeping, you could be lying in bed listening to my podcast, Radio Richard. Intriguing interviews and pulsating performances from master musicians like Chick Corea, Barry Manilow, Lyle Mays, and Michael McDonald. Hey girl, I want you to know I'm gone. Don't be a wimp. You can sleep anytime. Don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard.